land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. You must obey them as long as you live. When you drive out the nations that live there, you must destroy all the places where they worship their gods, on the mountain and on the hills and under the green tree. Break down their altars and smash their sacred pillars. Burn their Asherah poles and cut down the carved idols. Completely erase the names of their gods. Do not worship the Lord your God in the way these pagan peoples worship their gods. Rather, you must seek the Lord your God at the place of worship he himself will choose from among the tribes, the place where his name will be honored. There you will bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your sacred offerings, your offerings to fulfill a vow, your voluntary offerings, and your offerings of the firstborn animals of your herds and flocks. There you and your families will feast in the presence of the Lord your God, and you will rejoice in all you have accomplished because the Lord your God has blessed you. Your patterns of worship will change. Today, all of you are doing as you please because you have not yet arrived at the place of rest, the land the Lord your God is giving you as your special possession. But you will soon cross the Jordan River and live in the land the Lord your God is giving you and when he gives you rest from all your enemies and you're living safely in the land, you must bring everything I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your sacred offerings, and your offerings to fulfill a vow to the designated place of worship, the place the Lord your God chooses for his name to be honored. You must celebrate there in the presence of the Lord your God with your sons and daughters and your servants and remember to include the Levites who live in your, in your towns, for they will receive no allotment of land among you. Be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings just anywhere you like. You may do so only at the place the Lord will choose within one of your tribal territories. There you must offer your burnt offerings and do everything I commanded you. But you may butcher your animals and eat their meat in any town whenever you want. You may freely eat the animals with which the Lord your God blesses you, all of you, whether ceremonially clean or unclean, may eat that meat. And you must now, as you now eat gazelle and deer, but you must not consume the blood. You must pour it out on the ground like water but you may not eat your offerings in your hometown, neither the tithe of your grain, nor the new wine or olive oil, or nor the firstborn of your flocks and herds, nor any offerings to fulfill a vow, not your voluntary offerings, nor your sacred offerings. You must eat these things in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose. Eat them there with your children, your servants, and the Levites who live in your towns, celebrating in the presence of the Lord your God in all you do. And be very careful never to neglect the Levites as long as you live in your land. When the Lord your God expands your territory as he promised, and you have the urge to eat meat, 
You may freely eat meat wherever you want, whenever you want. It might happen that the designated place of worship, the place the Lord your God chooses for his home to be honored, is a long way from your home. If so, you may butcher any of the cattle, sheep, or goats the Lord has given you, and you may freely eat the meat in your hometown, as I have commanded you. Anyone, whether ceremonially clean or unclean, may eat the meat, just as you do now with gazelle and deer, but never consume the blood, for the blood is the life, and you must not consume the lifeblood with the meat. Instead, pour out the blood on the ground like water. Do not consume the blood, so that all may go well with you and your children after you, because you will be doing what pleases the Lord. Take your sacred gifts and your offerings given to fulfill a vow to the place the Lord the Lord chooses, you must offer the meat and blood of your burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord your God. The blood of your other sacrifices must be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God, and you may not eat the meat, and you may eat the meat. Be careful to obey all my commands so that all will go well with you and your children after you, because you will be doing what is good and pleasing to the Lord your God. When the Lord your God goes ahead of you and destroys the nations and you drive them out and live in their land, do not fall into the trap of following their customs and worshiping their gods. Do not inquire about their gods, saying, how do these nations worship their gods? I want to follow their example. You must not worship the Lord your God the way the other nations worship their gods. For they perform for their gods every detestable act that the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters as sacrifice to their gods. So be careful to obey all the commands I give you. You must not add in anything to them or subtract anything from them. The word of the Lord. God, thank you for that reading, Chris. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Kelly, unless they want to find out how we don't burn them, as the end of the reading from the book of Deuteronomy suggested. It's helpful that they don't know that, because you can always still hold it out as a threat, even though it's not a possibility for you. Well, this morning we, we sort of turn a corner in our reading through the book of Deuteronomy is that 1 through 11 sort of um, uh, encapsulated these sort of recounting of stories and narratives and also spoke to these sort of two greatest commandments that we have, which is the, the Shema, well, a collection of commandments and then the greatest commandment. The Shema here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And the other one, which is the, that list of the Ten Commandments. And so what we get at the start of 12, which will take us all the way through 25, is the sort of list of specific commands and ways that Israel is to enact in the world. And these, I think, are important for us to go through, although we won't spend as much time with them as we did with uh, the other portions. And I think it's because they, they paint for us the outline of what New Testament faith looks like. I think Christians will get to that with this passage uh, explicitly at the end of the sermon, um, but more so 
now is that these, these things such as Jubilee, which is what will take up chapter 15, is these things speak to this sort of eschatological, this end times, this last hope, this fulfillment of what God is going to do in Jesus Christ. And you see the outlines of that in the book of Deuteronomy and other commands. Or in Leviticus, we saw it in sacrifices, that, that they image the sacrifice that Jesus will complete for us. And I think it's helpful for Christians to slow down and take these in to see and learn those lessons because they teach us what it is to be a member of the people of God, to come and to worship this one who is an incontrollable fire. It's, a, it's interesting on this morning, people, uh, with the smoke here, that, that, that they were at the base of sort of a smoking mountain for like almost uh, three or four years. I wonder if they were like, if it could just rain um, or something. Uh, we live in the midst of smoke today. And it reminds us of, of, I think, our lack of control in life. And I think it, too, reminds the Israelites, when they live with God close to them that way, their lack of full control, that there is one beyond. The fire is, is, is in some sense representing damage, but I think we live lives in which we think we have the solutions to everything. It's also true that we live during the time of virus in which we think technological solutions will come to our rescue in time. And perhaps they might, and it might be wise for us to pray for such a thing too, but the fact is that whenever something comes in our lives that disrupts us, we rush to these solutions to heal us and to bring us back. Perhaps someday we'll run into something that we can't do that with. But it is for us today to talk about Deuteronomy 12, which is one of those passages, thank you, Chris, for reading out loud, that when it's read aloud, I think, uh, what did I get myself into? Um, uh, there's a lot there, but not a lot that speaks, I think, directly to us as often as we would like. But one of the things that I wanted to, th Walter Brueggemann is an Old Testament scholar who I greatly appreciate. And he says this about the coming passages that we're going to go through from 12 to 25. That the purpose of the corpus that follows is to bring every aspect of the public life of Israel under the aegis of God of Sinai. Because that God is in every way uh, incomparable, Israel's appropriate response of faithful obedience is to enact a different social practice that is commensurate, commensurate and congruent with the character and the will of Yahweh as articulated by Moses. Israel's particular public obedience is a practice of Yahweh who is made visible and palpable in the public policies and daily actions of Israel. The full sentence. Um, but what Brueggemann is trying to say is that from 12 to 25, what we find is that these people are going to image a just society of God to the rest of the world. And everything that they do is going to be brought sort of under this umbrella of sort of imaging to God what justice and what it means to be these people looks like. Going back to the Abraham, Abrahamic blessing is that they are blessed, they are being brought into this land to be a blessing to the nations. The particularity of Israel as a blessed one is supposed to show something forth. It's to be a light to the Gentiles. You see this in the book of Isaiah, that nations will stream to this place. That the people of Israel aren't supposed to be either good or blessed for their own sake, but to be blessed and good and a representative of the Lord for the sake of the world. 
So too it is we know this with the church, that we are blessed and brought into Jesus Christ, that we belong in this place not just for our own sake, but for the sake of the world. And so what this passage, this section teaches us, is how to bring those things to God. But what becomes clear as you read it is how the Israelites live, eat, sacrifice, worship is to be different from the surrounding cultures around them, that they are supposed to be different. Now, if you're a high schooler, this is some of the worst advice ever. Be different. You'll stick out and get made fun of. But Israel has its particular way among the nations. This passage this morning today deals with worship that they are not to worship all the other gods in the land that they're surrounding them. Not even just not worship, they're supposed to sort of blot their names out from the places as they go into that place. That they are not to be deformed by chasing after other things. That they're supposed to be wholly devoted to God, and the way that one of the ways they're going to do that as they go to this land is to make sure that the options are closed to them to go to those other places. Now, I know many of us think about... Um, other religions, the way we think about Christianity, which I don't think is wise for us, um, but I think there are religions, I think the monotheistic religions we've kind of hinted at, I think have a similar relationship to you don't really dabble with other gods. But most religions, particularly at this time, were not monotheistic. They were regional and they had houses and this, that, and the other. And so you were completely free to sort of dabble with these other ones. Now, one of the things that we know about the early Christians is one of the complaints about them was that they were atheists, that they didn't participate in all the other rituals and all the other things. And the Jews get, get often maligned for this as well, is that they're people who seem to live with no God. Because where is their temple? Where is the body of this God? Where is the shrine to this one? Or they're the ones who worship the one true God as the way that the Jews and Christians like to put it. But it, what's clear is as we watch Christianity grow is that there are Christian martyrs, but the stories of pagan martyrs are few and far between because their devotion to their individual reader, uh, regional gods was not like um, what we see in the Old Testament type of devotion that carries into Christianity. That there's this way in which you don't go to other houses of worship. You don't go to other places. You don't chase after other gods. It's not just a little thing to drop some money in front of um, uh, Artemis, the god in Ephesus. They just can't participate at all. And this makes Christians and Jews stand out throughout the ancient world. And here they're told that they have to, to sort of take those things out of the land as they go into it. But one of the things I wanted to talk about shortly about this this morning, is the way that we are shaped by liturgies. Now, if you were here when we read the book You Are What You Love by Jamie Smith, some of this or most of this might be familiar, but that we are shaped by the liturgies we surround ourselves with in our lives. And so in the ancient Near East, as the Israelites go into this place, there are liturgies and ways of worshiping these other gods that you might get drawn into or might not get drawn into, but they have these patterns, Right? We don't live in quite that clear of a world, but what Smith argues is that we have liturgies of the mall. And he says the mall treats us in a certain way in which we understand ourselves. It's, he says, first, humans are broken and flawed. By holding up for us ideals of which we fall for, short, 
such as snappy clothing and stylish hair, ads seek to inscribe in us a sense that something's wrong with us, that something's broken. Second, shopping with family or friends at a mall involves a strange configuration of sociology in which shoppers construe their relationships in terms of competition against one another and against the icons of their reveals that have been painted for us. Sh third, shopping offers the hope of redemption and consummation, consumption. On this account, the goal of shopping is the acquisition of goods and the services that try to address the problem. We have come to recognize in ourselves our pear-shaped figure, our pimply face, our drab and outdated wardrobe. The satisfaction that derived from purchases of this kind is short-lived and so beckons another shopping trip. That the mall and ads and what we're surrounded with beckons to us in a certain way about how we are broken and how we get healing, most notably through consuming, and that that will get us through until the next time we go to the mall. Now, I'm aware that one, this is a very dated reference because people don't go to malls anymore. Um, but if you are one who lives the scrolling life from Instagram to Twitter to um, news and all the other fascinations we have in the world, the same messages are crawling out, crying out to us that these are the ways you heal yourself in this world. And if you think, well, shopping isn't my drug, that dieting um, follows this same pattern, as well as, I think, our addictions as well. We begin to consume and to consume and to think that will provide us with healing. So let us go and raise the Glenwood Mall and get the idols out. No, there's nothing there. <laughs> They're doing the best at shutting themselves down. Um, but, except for Ross, Ross remains. Um, That's a bizarre side note that anybody, I have some friends that listen to these sermons and they're going to be like, what the heck is he talking about? Um, <laughs> the, uh, the note is, though, that we don't go out and extinguish these things the way that Israelites are called to do, but we do have competing, competing liturgies that want to play upon us. We do have competitions that want to tell us, here's how you solve the anguish that is in within your soul. And what we as Christians do is we're much better at syncretism than the rest of, of the world because they're so hidden sometimes, these gods. They don't come to us in temples although many of them have their temples. This is why the mall serves as an image to some degree, is that you actually do go to it. Um, there is these images and ads that beckon us. There's these ways in which you're described in the world. And, and what's interesting I find about it is you begin to build identities around the ornaments that you surround yourself in the modern world. I always wear Nike. I always wear this. I always, and it's funny because Nike is a god. Um, uh, some of them aren't as clever as we think they are. Um, but what happens is, is that Christians, we know that we're shaped by the liturgies around us. In the words of Jamie Smith, we sort of become what we love. And what the book of Deuteronomy is trying to teach the people here is that if you go in, um, into these other religious spheres, you're going to begin to be shaped by them. They're going to impress upon you the desires and goals that they have for you not the desires and goals that God has for you. And what comes clear in this, in this sort of description here is that what God's goal for them is rest. Chris read that word several times. It's not competition. It's not more consumption. It's not continually to try and to fill a void with the next product or purchase. 
but to rest in the goodness of God. See, it's, uh, this religion that we follow has this different set of, of goals here. It's to one to be restful, to be one to be brought into that place. And so as we're shaped by these things, it's wise for us to begin to resist them, to draw them out as, um, as Deuteronomy says, as we push these things out of our lives. And many of us are aware of this with children and in technology and our own battles with technology too. It's to sort of keep those things at bay because they set up idle houses in our lives. And so what Israel's called into here is sort of finding the right symbolization for their public worship, to sort of find the ways in which they correctly are defined by their God, to sort of see these things. Because it sort of goes up and down from there, is that if you mess up your worship, it bleeds into your ethics. That's what the final warning about is in this chapter. It's Moses saying, you know, if you really get this wrong and you begin to do these practices, before you know it, you're burning children. Um, and if anybody's watched, I think, what we do to children on reality TV today um, and what we do to children in the public sphere today, it's not hard to see how the line from, from bad worship, I think, leads to a burning of them in the modern sense. I don't think we, we light them on fire and, and burn them, but there's a certain way in which the consumption that we've created around children and the idolization of it to some degree, I think shows a bizarre corruption in our modern world. Um, I didn't want to get too far, and that was not in my notes, but it, uh, but it becomes clear that, that if you look out, and there's, if you want to talk about it, I could mention the places you could look, um, but we, have deep wounds there today um, in the ways that we handle and look at children. So much so that, that Deuteronomy 12 should not seem that far to us. That if we get these things wrong, this is where it leads. What I wanted to do was make a joke about uh, Moses and the slippery slope argument, but then it got dark. I don't know how that happened. Um, uh, but regardless, um, they're called to resist these practices and to drive them out and to sort of just go to the Lord. And what the three verbs that sort of are about driving them out are sort of replaced by these three ways in which you are not to worship the Lord in their way. But you are to seek the place your God chooses from among the tribes, but put his, their name for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There you bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts that you have vowed to give, and your freewill offerings and the first burden of your herds and flocks. There in the presence of the Lord you and your family shall eat and rejoice in everything you have put your hand to because the Lord your God has blessed you. The practices of bringing your offerings and sacrifices to this place. And what this sort of command teaches, and as we go through the rest of Deuteronomy 12, there's the 90% and the 10%. The 90% you are free to enjoy in your house and where you are. And the 10% you are to give to God and to rejoice with other people. God is in some sense returning 100% of all the things to his people. It's 90% of it that is sort of at your house, and 10% of it you consume at the place of worship together, that we go out to these places. This is a noticeable difference to the other gods because they want your sacrifice to be offered in a way in which you can't get it back. 
They want to sort of destroy and consume. They want to sort of pull you from those things. Um, whereas the God of Israel sort of brings them to a spot in which they are practiced together in joyful blessedness as a sign of what God has done for them. That God sort of brings these place, people to these places and that it culminates in a joy. One of the things that we often miss in, in our tithing, but also in the giving in the modern world, is this joy. Now, I'm somebody who likes nice meals shared with other people, um, and there is a time when properly practiced in which joy overcomes those places. There are times when improperly practiced, be, they become elements of competition, too. And what God is calling his people into is to a place of joyful blessedness that goes beyond the competition we have that goes beyond this need to sort of be higher than other people and to have that be in our lives. It's almost as if at worship in this gift of giving that there's a leveling and sharing and being together that transforms. In verses 8 through 12, they're told that there comes a time of rest, of well over in goodness. And that, that this place, the name, is, is supposed to reside. Now, uh, Kara read for us during the worship set that passage from Ezekiel about God's reverence for God's name, that, that God's name is in some sense what has been defamed by the bad actions of Israel, and it's also what, is, um, what God is set to uphold. God is about uh, having his name resound in goodness, and we often defame the name. And this is, this is I think, different for us because we don't think about God's name this way, that God has a reputation. And, and even in that passage, it says, I'm not doing this for your sake. I'm doing it so that people know that I'm better than this. Because you have dragged me down, I need to set things to right. One of my favorite parts about this is that we pray every week, um, uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name that we pray for the divine name, that it would be hallowed. My favorite translation of that portion of the Lord's Prayer, ask God to uphold the holiness of his name, is that we aren't ones who perfectly hallow God's name ourselves, but God is one who upholds the holiness of his name for us. It keeps with the first part of the Lord's Prayer being about what God does as well for us. And so this name that resides in this place in Deuteronomy becomes this way of the people having access to God through these things and non-access to God through these things. Um, in the ancient Near East, to have a temple to your God was to have your God. Israel is always being confronted with this challenge of that their God is coming to reside among them, and yet their God is not fully contained by what they want. God is often, and the words for these in, in theological language we use, transcendence and imminence. That God is transcendent, um, that he is beyond, that it's not that he can be bound in a temple, and this is what comes out in the prophets at times, that you think God just lives here, and because you do this here, that God somehow is pleased by you when God resides in all places and is greater than that. And yet there's this imminence too, that God wants to be near to his people 
that there is a smoky mountain at the center of the camp, that the people are called into these truths in this way of being with this God who is going to be near to them. You can't defame the temple either, despite the fact that God may not be bound completely there. And so God says he will find this place in the world. In verses 13 through 19, call this place for public worship. And it, it, there's this interesting contrast. You are not to do as you do here today, everyone doing, see, uh, everyone doing as they see fit. That's in verse 8, I think. Um, then they're told later, eat as much as the meat you want, and if it were gazelle or deer, according to the blessing your Lord God gives you. These commands seem contradictory to some degree. You're not to do as you please everybody in their own sight. You can eat as much as you want of it. You can take, in, in Hebrew, you would, you would spread your life's desire in this. And these things seem sort of at odds. And notably, the one at the top, you're not to do here today as everyone's seen as they see fit, goes back to that original temptation with Adam and Eve, is that they wanted to define reality their own way to be able to self-define reality. And what God is calling them to is to see reality as this generous gift of God. And so once they get into the pattern of going to the temple, once they get into offering these things to God, they can begin to be given back their freedom in this. And the curing for it comes in two ways. One is that the blood they're no longer to consume now. There's two thoughts on this. One is that there was a practice in the ancient Near East that to consume the blood of something was to become the thing, that you would have the power over it. And so we have this teaching in the book of Leviticus that the life is in the blood. And so what not consuming the blood teaches is that life belongs to God, not to you. And so they're not to consume the blood anymore because that's where the life resides. The second thing is they have, um, there's a way of conceiving of the gifts that they're giving back to God as kind of a rent payment. They pay 10% in rent to God for living on this land. And in that way, they're able to see that this is not their own either. I think one of the greatest challenges comes in our lives um, and it comes in our adult lives, we see it easier with children, is that this is mine, not yours. We begin to take ownership of the world. We begin to say that this belongs to us. And what God is teaching the Israelites is that it all belongs to God. You are to see God's hand in all of it. You can't take it for yourself. To live on the land, to live in this rest, is to live in the blessing of the good God. The final sort of passage on this teaches that if your home is too far away, that you can do your sacrifices there as well, as God sort of is building generosity in for his people. Um, God is building a way in for his people to be able to practice this religion both near and far from that place. And it ends with the rhetoric of sort of um, uh, imitating, imitating the cultures around you and the ways in which we are not to do so. And so what happens is the patterns that God sets for worship for them is life-affirming. 
Not every appetite is to be pleased, but we are to be receive of God's life, that it has a discipline and offering, that it's to be joyous, that it's to be material, and that it includes all people. The meals that God sets forth in these to bring your servants, to bring other people along with you, is to set a meal in a place in which all are invited. As Christians, we know this from the eschatological banquet that awaits us. In the Gospel of Luke, God says that people will come from the north, the south, and the east, and the west to eat at this table. And not only that, that the last shall be first at that time as well. That God is setting a place for us in the world. And this brings us to joyousness in God. So the last thing for today is this this. But you are to seek the place your Lord God will choose from among your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. Christians are tempted to say that this has been eradicated, that God no longer chooses places um, for his dwelling, but that everywhere is God's dwelling. And while that may seem true, what we hear in the book of Colossians is that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For him, by him, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All these things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and him, him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in everything that might be permanent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What I think we miss is that God in his time has chosen to dwell in a particular spot again. But it is not in a temple, it is not in a, in a church, it is not in one spot, but in Christ whose body is that place. It is where the fullness of God dwells there. And that is where the reconciliation of our hearts takes place. And so for Christians, when we read passages like this, we're tempted to think, dim people thinking God is in a temple. And yet we too believe in the particular location of God as well. It's in the body of Jesus where he was pleased to dwell. And so that's why, in some sense, we invite God into this place. We invite Jesus to be here. We practice the meal that he's given us. We try to look in these spots for the ways in which the fullness of God dwelling on Christ might come to his body in this passage, the church. And so we find the place the Lord has chosen for his dwelling in fullness in the pattern of his son, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. God, we are challenged by the liturgies and the gods that surround us to chase after them, to mimic them, to be brought into their worship. 
God, may you and us push those idols out. Push them.